بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه المعين. so we talked about the steps to the initial steps to progression. the first one we said was um, leaving sin, right? you can think of this as a precursor to actually being able to make progress and traversing the path of suluk. the second way, the second we said was to do a sincere tawbah and that takes a minute. it can be done. Uh, it, it, I mean, most of the time it's done when someone's by themselves. But you could do it with someone else as well. But the tawbah is to Allah. So you're with someone to Allah. Because the Prophet said, Woman tawbah ma'aka. It comes in, in the Quran itself that they did tawbah with the Prophet. But in any case, tawbah is that you sincerely repent for all your prior mistakes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala removes that burden off your shoulders. And, and, and now you're able to. So now you've removed, you've stopped sin. So sin is what was going to hold you back. In the event of you making progress, you've removed that load, which was uh, through tawbah, which was the effect, uh, or you could say the the harms of that sin. And then the third and final, uh, or the the third step, was to get is to get help, professional help. And I said that when the body is sick, we go to the doctors. We go to the doctors. We go, we go to the ER. We go to the clinic. And when the soul is sick, we too have to go to the doctors of the soul. If you think of the body, for instance, if someone suddenly develops chest pain, chest pain is a symptom. They don't know what it is. It could be a pneumothorax. It could be a myocardial infarction. You know, it could be just rib pain, costochondritis. It could be, uh, you know, a pneumonia. It could be pericarditis. You don't know. <clears throat> it's a symptom. And it's difficult for you to self-diagnose it. If you tell yourself that, you know what, I think this is this chest pain that I'm having, it's probably just from this sore rib that I have. I'm going to take some Tylenol and Motrin, and if it doesn't get better, you know, maybe I'll go, to, I'll go to the ER tomorrow. I mean, that would be a pretty poor decision because it's very possible that you're having a heart attack and you won't be alive in the, in the morning. So you don't take any chances. You're sick. You have a symptom. You'll go to the doctor. You know, if you have double vision, for instance, you could say, oh, you know what, maybe it's nothing. But it could be something as well. It could be glaucoma, it could be that you had a, a new stroke, cranial palsy, whatever it might be. It could, it's something that, that you can't make that diagnosis and decision on your own. And not only can you not diagnose on your own, you certainly can't self-treat yourself. In fact, you know, the, we say that the worst, and this, the worst, the most difficult patients to deal with are the people that, are the patients that think they know exactly what they have. And they want to treat it exactly the way they want to treat it. And, you know, this is kind of a, we, we sort of agree upon this, at least in, in, in our professional field, that those sorts of people, they end up doing very poorly in the long run. Because they think they know what they have, they always want to diagnose themselves, they always want to treat themselves, and they're never compliant with the treatment plan, and they don't make progress, you know, and, and their health begins to deteriorate. This principle applies for the physical body, and it most certainly applies for the spiritual soul as well. It applies for the soul as well. Now, the symptoms of the soul are not going to be things like you know, chest pain or double vision. The symptoms of the soul are going to be, you know, lack of concentration in salah. You know, I can't concentrate in my salah. What could it be? You know, there's so many. There's so many possibilities. It isn't just one thing. Each individual person who struggles with their concentration and focus in salah could have their own independent reason for why that is. And it's very difficult to know what it is unless you're trained in knowing how to identify what it could potentially be. The symptoms of the soul are not being able to wake up for the fajr prayer. You know, you try, you set an alarm clock every single morning, you set two alarms, one at 6.10, one at 6.20, and you sleep through both of them. You know, your, your, your wife, your husband sets the other alarm, everyone just sleeps through all the salahs. 
Everyone sleeps through Fajr every single morning. You try, the intention is there, your, your idea is there, but you just sleep right through it. That's a symptom. What, what is it? Is, it some, is there something wrong with me that I can't wake up for the Fajr prayer? The symptom of a diseased soul or the symptom of a um, soul that's not healthy is that I'm, I can't recite the Qur'an. I mean, I take it off the shelf and I just I have no interest in reading, in reading the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Symptoms are controlling the tongue. You know, I, I, I try to control my tongue, but every time you know, I get with my friends and I just start talking and talking, I don't know exactly what is it that's setting this thing off. Symptoms are lack of trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a symptom. You know, why is it that I am so worried all the time? Why is it that I'm lacking in my tawakkul of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Why is it? So these are all symptoms and the people that can identify these symptoms and help you work toward treating these symptoms would be the doctors of the soul. Would be the doctors of the soul. So this is why it's important for, for people that desire to remove the internal sins and diseases from themselves to approach people that can help them along this way. They can approach people that can help them along this way. Now, it isn't that it's absolutely required. This isn't, it isn't required. But if you look at the model of the sunnah, which was the sahaba ta'ala anhum, when they had any issue, what would they do? They could have just thought about it and ruminated, but they would go to the Prophet and they would ask him, what, what is this? Why is it that I'm having this? What is it, what is it that's causing this? How, how, what do I do about it? And then the people that came after the sahaba, the tabi'een, they went to the sahaba ta'ala anhum. The ones that were you know, experts in a particular field, they would go to them and they would approach them. And they would ask them, how do I treat this? And this was the case from the Sahaba, the Tabi'een. And it continues all the way down. And this principle of this, this concept of teacher-student relationship, this teacher-student relationship, or even mentorship system, we apply this in every other field. We apply this in every other field. You can look at you know, even the world's greatest athletes have a coach. You know, why is it that the best player who's making the most money in the NBA has a coach? Why is it? Because there's perhaps another step that that person can then reach that they can you know, become masterful in, in the sport. Everyone has a coach. You go into, uh, you, you enter into a residency program. You're assigned a mentor or a research mentor or some sort of a mentor. Someone that's achieved excellence in that field that can help you get to that point. And until and unless you have a mentor or a teacher or a guide or someone that can help you get from point A to point B, it'll be very difficult to traverse that path. Because there's so many blocks along the way. It could be that you could turn right or you could turn left. Or you could, you know, you can go backward, you can go, you don't know which direction to go. But someone that's already been there, been through that path and, fi- and has already reached the destination, that person can say, no, 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 don't go there, trust me. If you go down that route, then you're going to, you know, go way out in left field. And it'll take you, you know, five years to come back onto the straight path. We apply this principle, you know, in so many things in our life. So many things in our life. This idea, this principle of having someone, a coach, a mentor, a teacher. You know, it's not even people that want to achieve the, the pinnacle in deen. In fact, it's often or the pinnacle of something, like a sport. It's even often sometimes the weakest. The weakest student in, in, in a class, what do, what do the parents have to do for them? They have to hire them a tutor. They'll have to hire them a tutor. Why? Because that person needs extra attention. That so you and I, were all weak in our deen. We are all weak in our deen. And we, we desire to become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And ideally, if there's someone who is able to help guide us along that path and protect us from the, uh, or protect us from the difficulties that we may you know, 
get to or see along that path or the challenges that we may face along that path, then it becomes far easier. You could do things through books. You could. But if somebody wants to become a physician and they try to read books, there's no way they'll be licensed in this country. There's no way. There's no way. You could read, through, read things through books, you know, read books of law and then, and then say that you're going to become a lawyer, a lawyer but you're not going to get any cases. You, no firm will ever hire you. Why? Because they know that, look, for you to be for you to achieve excellence in that field, you have to be in a program or you have to be under the guise of instructors and teachers and mentors that guide you along the way and allow you to achieve that goal. Allow you to achieve that goal. Then and only then will you become a physician or a lawyer or whatever it might be. Or an athlete. Or an athlete. So it's very, it's essential. It's, it's very helpful. Let's put it that way. It's not fard, it's not wajib. If anything, you know, you could, it's, you could say that it's a type of sunnah because the Prophet was a teacher. But if you want to achieve your goal, you can try it both ways. You can try traversing the path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without a teacher and, and see what happens. Maybe you'll get there. Maybe you'll have such good company that you won't, that maybe you'll do it. But the vast majority of people will come right back a, a, a year or two having gotten lost along the way and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Or you can say, okay, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see. If I become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu through a teacher, then, then this is the way to do it. So the classical books uh, of Tazkiyah, they mention, they use, you know, I use the example of a coach. The classical books of Tazkiyah, they used to use the example of a gardener, right? So the, every single, uh, so Iman is a seed that's planted in a garden. So let's say that we're, everyone's planted inside a garden. And the seed and the, and the teacher is the gardener. Now there are some gardens that won't have a gardener. In that case, weeds will come along the way, you know, shaitan or the nuks will come along the way. It'll take the water away from the seed and not allow it to grow. It won't allow it to flourish. That, that seed will never get fertilizer. It might grow, but it'll be very difficult and very challenging. Now, on the other hand, a seed that's growing under the monitoring of a gardener who cultivates it, who makes sure it gets water, who makes sure that the weeds are pulled away, makes sure it gets fertilizer, and all of these things, and all the attention of that gardener is then on making sure that that seed then, then flourishes into a beautiful tree that bears fruit. That's the example that they give. That's the example that they give. The purpose of keeping in touch with... The purpose of keeping in touch with a teacher is... Uh, has a few benefits. Number one, that you are able to then communicate with regards to how your dhikr is going. So I had mentioned, uh, or uh, I mentioned the five things that that nourish the soul. We talked about salah, we talked about, uh, sorry, we talked about Quran, dhikr, etc. So it's important to keep tabs on these things. There's going to be days where, you know, maybe you, Maybe you starved your soul of Qur'an for three or four days. Now you're wondering, do I need to make it up? What do I need to do now? Why did it happen? I, I thought I was doing so well. I was, for three weeks I was reciting Qur'an consistently and now I've lost it. Is there, something, is there something that I'm doing wrong? You know, I'm doing a dhikr of my heart and I'm reflecting upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's greatness. But every time I sit, all I can think about is my iPhone. I just sit down for 20 minutes, my iPhone's coming into my mind. What, does this mean something? What is it? Why is it that, I, why is it that this keeps coming into my mind? And you can try to figure it out on your own. But keeping in touch when it comes to your, your daily routine and your daily food for the soul, daily or weekly or monthly food for the soul, having the teacher or the shaykh watch over it, it's very helpful. A second benefit is that the uh, shaykh can be informed of any spiritual condition that a person has. 
So we had questions that were about you know, ostentation. And how, how do I know if I have it? Or what if I do have it? What do I do about it? I, I know clearly that I have pride. I know clearly that I'm greedy. You know, I know the Prophet ﷺ said that we're supposed to give sadaqah as much as possible, help the needy, you know, serve those that are poor and destitute, and, you know, provide for orphans. And I, I have no desire to do any of those things. I have no desire to do this. It must mean that I'm greedy, but what is it? What is it that's making me do this? And what, what, what is it? It's one question, but then what do I do about it now? Is there anything I can do? Is there any you know, way I can get past this? Is there any way I can get past this? So there's many things, you know, we talked about ostentation, we talked about pride, we talked about greed, and then of course we talked about the love, love for the dunya and, and what, what that can do to a person. So that's the second thing. A third benefit of having a teacher, a guide, or someone that can help along the way is that you have that person for mashwara, for consultation. Now you have, you're welcome to do consultation with anyone, and that's, this is part of the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, that we should get and seek counsel and advice from people. Um, but it's helpful to have someone that you can go to that can sort of help you, you know, along the way for, for different purposes. Now we're talking about mashwara, not hukum. So just because a teacher says, advises you on something, there's nothing binding for you to do. This isn't hukum. Hukum is from Allah Ta'ala and the Prophet There's no one that can commit you to any sort of advice. This is just advice. This is just advice that, that we seek. That we seek. And so if you seek it from someone who already knows your condition, then it, then it helps you in that regard. So then the next question people ask is, Okay, I know, I understand that it's, it's helpful and it's necessary and it's important to help me get or, or tread the path of suluk and become close to Allah. How do I decide on who the right person is for me? How do I decide that who's the right person for me? So there's a few conditions that a person should look for when they're deciding who they would like to take as their teacher. And again, this doesn't have to be a formal process. It could be formal. It could be informal, it could be that someone that's just your mentor, your coach, it could be the imam of a masjid, it could be an alim of the community, it could be, any, it could be anyone, it could be someone who you look up to in the community, who you feel is, 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 is very regular in their deen and is a good role model. You can make that person as well. So that would be informal, you can make it more formal. The advantages of making it formal is because when you have a formal commitment or you at least have you know, one teacher who's qualified that you connect with, then it puts a little bit of responsibility on your shoulders. Like you'll, you'll have more incentive to want to do it. You know, in the time of, and this applies for other disciplines of deen as well. If you wanted to study hadith in the time of Imam Bukhari, rahimahullah, you would not be able to become his student. Like, you couldn't just become his student. He would have his dars of hadith, and he would have his serious students that formally registered in the class there, and those were his students. And if you wanted to become part of that group, you couldn't just come and listen to hadith, and then later on transmit that to hadith to someone else and say that I had heard it from Imam Bukhari. You couldn't do that, even though you heard it from him. You had to audit the class initially, and after you audited the class, and you was, it was seen that you were regular in the class, and that you paid attention uh, in the class, and that you did the assignments, and you never missed anything, then and only then would you then be able to become a student, and then accept hadith Imam Bukhari. You know, this is kind of the case in, 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 even in college, for instance. You have the option. You can audit a class. You can say that I'm going to make this professor kind of someone who I look up to. But until you formally register into that class, you're not going to take the class seriously. You'll miss assignments. You might miss a class here and there saying, you know, it's not that big of a deal. There's, no, there's nothing. I mean, it's, just, it's just a class that I'm not even officially registered. And what, what difference does it make? So when you actually have a relationship with someone, then you'll get feedback. You'll get, you know, this is what you need to do next. And it's... It's this regular interaction that you have. So that's why that tends to be a little bit better. But it's up to you. There's no, there's no right or wrong per se. So the classical books mention uh, what a person should look for when they're deciding on whom they should take as someone that can help them along the path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
The first thing, this is number one, is that that person, the, the person, that the, the individual, should live their life according to the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. They should be very firm on the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Very firm on the Qur'an and Sunnah. They should accept everything in the Qur'an and they should implement it. And everything from the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ and they should implement it. And if any of these, either of these two things are lacking, then be very careful. Be very careful. You don't want to follow someone who's going to mislead you or misguide you. And our goal is the Qur'an and Sunnah. It's not to chase some particular feeling. It's not to chase some particular dhikr that you know, is enticing to us. That's not our goal. The goal is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The goal is to become firm on the sunnah of the Prophet And so if there is someone who is lacking in any of these things, whether it be following the Qur'an and the rulings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, or in the sunnah of the Prophet then just run in the other direction. So the first criteria is that the person that you are seeking should be very firm on the Qur'an and on the sunnah of the Prophet Number two, the person should have an unbroken chain or a sanad that connects back to the Prophet Connects back to the Prophet. I explained to you earlier that the way that Tazkiyah was transmitted over time, the way was that it was the Sahaba who had an effect on the Tabi'een, who then had an effect on the Tabi'a Tabi'een. And then the generations after and after and after, there was a chain that connects back, that connects from the Prophet to, to the teacher. And this applies to other disciplines as well. If you want to study tafsir, for instance, you have to study from a teacher who studied tafsir, you have to study from a teacher who has an unbroken chain that goes back to the Prophet So this alim, or this mufti, or this mufassir, has to have a teacher who studied from their teacher, who studied from their teacher, who studied from their teacher, who studied from the sahaba, who studied from the Prophet directly. You can't be that there's someone who you know, studied on their own, and then, and then you want to study tafsir from them. You, you don't want to do that. You don't want to take that chance. You have to have someone who has an unbroken chain. Same with hadith. If you're studying hadith, now if you roll in an institution that teaches hadith, then the teacher of hadith, the, the shaykh al-hadith, if you look at that person's biography, you'll see that that person is authorized to teach hadith. And that authorization came from that person's teacher. And that person's teacher had an authorization that came from the teacher above him. And the teacher above him, and that authorization goes back to the tabi'in, tabi then the tabi'in, the sahaba, and eventually they heard it directly from whom? The Prophet so if there is a broken chain, or if then, then it's, it's very misleading. It has to be an unbroken chain that connects back to the Prophet This applies for all disciplines of, of Islam. Whether it be hadith, whether it be fiqh, whether it be tafsir, whether it be uh, tasawwuf and tazkiyah, it doesn't make a difference. We are embedded and firmly grounded in tradition. And don't let anyone say, tell you otherwise. We are connected to the Prophet through unbroken chains. We are connected to the Prophet through unbroken chains. And which when we leave these chains, that we then traverse a path that is way out in left field. That's number three. That's number two. The second is that the, the local or the contemporary ulama and the ulama and the muftis respect, an author, uh, respect and appreciate that teacher. Meaning, you know, it's very possible that someone, you know, it, you can't tell if they're firm on the Qur'an and Sunnah because you, you're not at that level. And number two, you're, you're not sure the person saying they have an unbroken chain that goes back to the Prophet, but you, you don't know, I mean, you can't tell. Um, but then the ulama of the community say, don't stay away from that, stay away. Why? Because this person you know, is, is against the Qur'an and Sunnah. There's somehow, there's something that's lacking in them. But if the, if the ulama of the time and of the place are encouraging you to seek spiritual, and, uh, spiritual guidance from that person, then you should seek that person. 
Because this is because we're because it's the ulama who are ulama waratul anbiya. They're the inheritors of the Prophet. So you have to you have to look at what they say as well. You have to look at the local ulama as well. The fourth is compatibility when you're looking for a teacher. You have to have some degree of compatibility with them. You know, whether that compatibility be language, you want perhaps someone to speak the same language as you, culture, you know, location, maybe someone who's far away will be difficult for you to interact with them. But someone who's close by you can interact with them more closely. You know, and then even something as simple as, you know, will they understand me? Maybe, maybe that person will understand me, but I feel like such and such person will understand me. You know, whether this is formal or informal, I was saying, this is, even if it's like someone, uh, a close friend, not a close friend, but uh, someone in the community who you respect, if it's someone that will understand you, then you should try to connect with them. And then the fourth, and, and then the fifth thing, and the final thing to look for, is when you are in the company of the teacher, you feel your heart is more attracted to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You feel that your heart is more attracted to Allah ta'ala. When you come in their company, when you sit down with them, or when you see them, they remind you of Allah. When you sit in their company, you feel like you're closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So much so that when you leave their company, you almost sense this um, loss, if you will. When you come back in their company, you're reminded about Allah ta'ala. You feel your heart just feels attached to Allah. Your heart feels attached to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You, you have this desire to practice deen. You have this desire to practice deen. And if you find that person, if you're, if you're lucky enough to find that person, then you should hold on to them. And you should seek benefit from that person. You, can see, you should seek benefit from that person. So these are five things to look for when you're seeking someone. Now again, and I'm, I'm highlighting this point again and again because I, I don't want there to be any misunderstandings. This isn't a requirement. This is something that you have to decide. If you want to traverse the path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can go a more difficult route, which is trying to handle things on your own. Or you can go the route of having someone who can help you along that path. That someone's a coach, that someone is, is showing you, telling you, you know, from the sidelines, is encouraging you and say, no, you can do it, you can do it. Look, I know you missed the hajj, it's okay, next time you'll get it, next time you'll get it, don't worry, next time you'll get it. You miss fajr prayer, inshallah, next time you'll get it. They're encouraging you from the sidelines. Right? Just like a coach encourages the player, you know, he misses a few shots, he misses a, a couple three-pointers. What does he tell him? He doesn't say, you know, you're, you're, uh, he doesn't discourage the person. He doesn't say, listen, stop shooting. He'll say, listen, don't worry, keep shooting, you'll get it, you'll get it back, you'll get it back. You'll be motivated, you'll be encouraged, you'll have someone to help you. And then of course they'll, they'll help you tips along the way, they'll, they'll identify diseases that maybe are present, that you didn't know were present, that you could work on. So, the ball is in your court essentially. It's, it's however, you, however you want to make it, whatever you want to make it to be. So those are, those are the five things that you should look for when you, when you are looking for someone that can help you along the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I want to conclude, we'll try to wrap things up in a few minutes now, the final thing that I'm going to conclude with is, the th uh, so we talked about the three things. One was leaving sin. The second step was to do tawbah. The third is to teacher. Have someone help you along the way, a teacher. And the fourth thing, the fourth and final thing, is to <clears throat> have an established routine. You have to have an established routine. The most successful people in, in this world are people that have a strict schedule and that have a routine of what they're going to do. They wake up in the morning, they know what they need to get done. They know what time their meetings are, they know what time they're going to have breakfast, they know, uh, you know what time their doctor's appointment is, they know what time, you know, they know all of these things. They have it already planned out. Success in deen also lies, relies upon us having a consistent routine. 
That consistent routine in particular when it is when it comes to dhikr and Quran and, and these things and having a daily routine, but it even extends into other aspects of our life which are not direct worship. Whether it be school, whether it be studying, whether it be work, whether it be our family, we should have a schedule. People of success have a schedule. People of the Prophet who was the most successful person who ever walked on the face of this earth, he had a schedule. You can look it up. He had a schedule. He had a schedule. He had a routine. So we too should adopt the routine if we want to be people of success. Now, we, our goal is to be successful in this world, right? in the in life of this world, in our studies, in our work, you know, with our employer. We want to be successful. We also want to be successful when it comes to deen. So we have double responsibility on our shoulders. So you can imagine, we have to have a routine in order, in order to make progress. We have to have a routine. And that routine should be one of consistency. The Prophet said in a hadith, أَحَبُّ الْأَعْمَالِ إِنَ اللَّهِ أَدْوَمُهَا وَإِنْ that the most beloved of deeds to Allah Ta'ala are those deeds that are done regularly. Regularly, but even if small. Even if they are small, but you do it regularly, then it's beneficial for you. So better than reading you know, three juz of Qur'an sporadically, once a week, it would be better for you to recite five minutes of Qur'an before going to bed every single night. Better than you, <clears throat> better than you waking up and doing eight hours of tahajjud when you feel like it, once a month or once every two months, it would be better for you to wake up and just pray two rak'ah of tahajjud every single morning. The best deeds are the most, not the best deeds, the most beloved deeds. To whom? To Allah. Or what? Uh, uh, the ones that are done consistently. So we should have a set amount every day of how much food we give our body. It can't be random. We're peop- we've become people of randomness. You know, I'm in the mood to go to Zohar today. I'm, I'm just going to go for Zohar. And then, and then not go again the rest of the week. You know, I'm in the mood to read Qur'an. Maybe I'll read Qur'an today. I'll read Qur'an. I'm in the mood to do a little bit of salawat in the Prophet Maybe I'll do a little bit and that's it. You should have a set amount of what you do every day. Qur'an, dhikr, salawat, going to the masjid. And then on top of that, if from time to time you get this motivation to do a little extra, then that's fine. But your baseline should be established. Right? You have to eat two meals a day or three meals a day. You have, I mean, the child has to eat that. If you don't and you eat sporadically, then what's going to happen to the soul? What's going to happen to the soul? But if you make it consistent that every day I'm going to do this, and if I have extra time that I'll do an additional amount, then, then so be it. But be people of consistency. Be people of consistency that are consistent in their a'mal and their deeds. And you will see over time progress being made. You might feel great after performing tahajjud for six hours one day. You might feel great for two or three days after thinking, man, alhamdulillah, what a great you know, morning I had. And you'll be living off that high for maybe a day or two. But then what happens the week after? Same, hit the ground. But, and, and so that's what happens. Whereas on the other hand, if you try to aim for consistency, you might be going like this, you know, kind of making this sort of very slow you know, ramp toward progress. But you're making progress. And if you take this time point and this time point, although each day, between each day, there was very little progress that was made over the course of six or seven months, you've made tremendous progress toward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You, this principle applies to our bodies as well. You know, if someone wants to get in shape, what's the most important thing to consider when you're on a, when you when you are trying to get in shape? Consistency. You can ask anyone that is trying to get in shape, physically fit. They will tell you that you have to be consistent. Ask any physical trainer. They'll say you have to be consistent. If I'm going to let you cheat, you're going to cheat consistently, right? Your cheat day will be consistently this time. You have to work out. Every, if you're going to work out every other day, consistently every other day, you have to work out and you can't miss a day. 
You can't miss a day. Now, there are some people, weekend warriors, what do they do? They'll go and work out, you know, Saturday morning. They're like, man, I feel great today. I'm going to go jog for three miles. What happens? They'll jog for three miles. They might, you know, hurt their ankle along the way because they hadn't stretched anything before. They'll come back and they'll be out for three or four days. Muscle cramps can't get anything done and they'll, they'll quit altogether. But a person who says, you know what, I'm going to start on a routine, they'll start small. And they'll work their way up, work their way up. But they're doing a consistent amount of their workout every single day or every other day. And they'll make progress. Six or seven months later, they'll look back and say, wow, this is, this is something. You know, I lost 25 pounds. Oh, wow, this is something. You know, I put on this much you know, muscle mass, whatever it might be. So the soul is the same way. It requires consistency and a routine. Ideally through a schedule, our daily schedule. But if we aren't able to do a daily schedule, then at least at the bare minimum, a routine of our ibadah toward Allah Ta'ala. Because then we'll make tremendous spiritual progress. Now there's, there's many routines you can follow. I'll share you the routine that I've learned from my teachers. You can choose to follow it. You can choose to you know, find another one. But it's, it, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the goal is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at some consistent level. The first thing that my teachers mentioned, and this is all, these are all we've covered sort of before in the food for the soul. I'm bringing it back here with something practically, like if you were, if you were to take home something from this gathering, practically that you wanted to do going forward, well, number one is, is to do tawbah. We already talked about that. But then next is to, is to follow a routine. And you could choose this routine if you'd like. The first thing is to recite Qur'an every single day. We talked about the importance of Qur'an. I don't need to go over that again. But every single day, 15 or 20 minutes, every single day a person should recite Qur'an. Every single day. The second thing that my teachers mentioned is to do istighfar every single day. To do astaghfirullah. Astaghfirullah rabbi min kulli dhambi wa atubu ilayh. It is seeking forgiveness for the mistakes that we've made from the day in the morning. We do it a hundred times, and a hundred times we do it at night. Why? Because there are mistakes that we make from Fajr until Maghrib. So those sins we wipe away by sitting down and saying, Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah, or Astaghfirullah, Rabbi, min kulli dhami wa I looked at this, I shouldn't have looked at it. I said this, I shouldn't have said it. You know, I, I touched this, I shouldn't have touched it. So you're, you're basically clearing, clearing the mistakes that you've made through the day. When you've done your tawbah, you've now eliminated the mistakes from before, right? A sincere tawbah. Now you want to make sure that you're keeping up with that. So you'll do istighfar a hundred times in the morning and then a hundred times in the evening you do istighfar. The Prophet ﷺ himself used to do istighfar at least 70 times in a day in one hadith. In another hadith he said he did it a hundred times in a day. This is the Prophet ﷺ who never committed a sin in his life. The Prophet ﷺ is doing istighfar. What about you and I? So we should do istighfar every single day, a hundred times in the morning. Uh, the, the number is variable, but the number that my teacher said, a hundred times in the morning and a hundred times in the evening. The third is to do salawat on the Prophet ﷺ. We talked about it as being food for the soul. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala ali Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik wa sallam. A hundred times in the morning and then a hundred times in the evening. The fourth is to do dhikr of the heart, dhikr qalbi or dhikr khafi. We talked about this. Fifteen to twenty minutes where you sit down and you reflect upon your state and you reflect upon the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Isolation in one place, in the masjid, at home, wherever it might be. But you dedicate this time to, uh, you dedicate this time to just to reflecting upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's greatness. The fourth, the, the fifth, <coughs> is to always be vigilant that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching you. In Arabic, this is called wuquf or wuquf al-qalbi, which is to stop on your heart and imagine that Allah ta'ala, no matter where you are, whether you're eating, sleeping, drinking, walking, talking, doesn't make a difference. Imagine that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching you. This is an active process initially. It's a reality. We said, right, Allah Ta'ala is always watching us. There's no question about that. Now we have to bring that reality into our heart. The Prophet had that reality in his heart. We have to bring it into our heart. 
And we start by, it's an active process. You imagine that Allah Ta'ala is watching you all the time. Eventually, it'll become almost passive and subconscious, such that you'll be in a state where you will always, you won't even have to actively think of that. You'll, you'll feel passively that Allah Ta'ala is watching you. And the sixth and final thing is to keep in touch with someone. Keep in touch with a teacher or a guide, someone that can help you um, become consistent in this and can help you uh, eliminate you know, sins from your life, etc., etc. So again, six things. Number one is Quran every single day. Number two is istighfar every single day. The third thing was salawat every single day on the Prophet Sallallahu Number four was to sit down and to do dhikr of the qalb every single day, of the heart, 15, 20 minutes. Uh, that was number four. Number five was to always be vigilant that Allah Ta'ala is watching you at all times. Allah Ta'ala is watching you at all times. And number six we said was to keep in touch with regards to this routine, but in general, uh, with, your, with, uh, with the teacher or someone that can help you uh, traverse along the path. So those are the main points that we wanted to cover today. Alhamdulillah, it's essentially 9 o'clock on the dot. Um, and we were able to get through it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is merciful. And he, it's out of His mercy that He allowed um, this, to, uh, this gathering to occur. And it's most certainly out of His mercy um, that He chose every single person uh, in this gathering to be here purposely. It isn't random that you're here. There are people that registered that aren't here right now. Um, there are people that, that are not here. And there are people that did not register uh, and didn't plan to come, and someone saw them, you know, yesterday or today, and said, "Come!" And Allah Taala invited that person here today. It's not random. You can't think it's random. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala wanted us, you and I, specifically this group of people, to be here and raise and remember His great name. It's purely out of His mercy. It isn't anything that you and I have done. It isn't anything that you and I have done. And it's rare in these days to have these sorts of gatherings. I mean, you know, this is it's a holiday. Where else are you going to find a gathering in, let's say, the city where people are just sitting here and talking about Allah Ta'ala's greatness and how to become close to Him? It's not happening. And these gatherings are so special that the angels brag to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala when people gather to remember Him, they climb on top of one another and they tell Allah Ta'ala that such and such of your creation are gathered here in your house to remember you. And Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala says, Be my witness that I've forgiven all of them given all of them where else are these gatherings occurring we are so fortunate we are so thankful to our Lord that he brought us here and he allowed us to remember him when we had become completely heedless of him we spent years just completely heedless of our creator and alhamdulillah he's brought us here to remind us that he's truly the one who's in charge and he's our goal and he's who we have to connect with He's who we have to connect with. We're going to meet him, inshallah. There will be a day where we'll meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's very possible that we'll, be, we'll remember this gathering uh, at that meeting. Because it could be that this gathering was finally, or for the first time, that gathering that introduced us to developing that relationship with him. And we'll say, oh, that's what it was. It was on that day. I knew that I was supposed to connect with you and learn about you and love you. And here I am. Here after with you.